Dotnet Rocks episode 803 with guest Alex Robson. Recorded live Friday, September 14th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. It's Carl. It's Richard. It's good. We're on the road. We are on the road again. I, I can't. I, I suppose I could probably figure out where we'd be by the time the show gets published, but who cares? We've been driving for a while. Yeah, we've been driving for a while. So if you don't know about the road trip, we're coming to a city near you in North America, uh, mostly in the United States. Although we are start, we started in Vancouver. We're coming to Toronto. Uh, but if you want the details of that, go to .netrocks.com/roadtrip.aspx. Good chance things are sold out, so you want to make sure you register and you can register. And of course. Walk-ins are welcome. Hey, man, it's better no framework time. Hit me. All right, what do you got? I have a library for you, man. Do you? This is a dot. This is a DevOps library. Interesting. Yeah, you got my attention. XML-RPC.net. Okay. XMLRPCNet is a library for implementing XMLRPC services and clients in the .NET environment, supporting versions 2.0 and upwards of the .NET runtime. So it's interface-based definition of XML RPC, code generation, Silverlight, Windows Phone, ASP.NET, web services, client support for asynchronous calls. Huh. Uh, so it's it's pretty cool. And check this out. There's a, uh, a quote by Scott Hanselman on it. Charles Cook created an amazing, elegant library called XML-RPC.net and has given it to the community. He's kept it working nicely such that I was able to get it working in my .NET 4.0 application without any modification, even though I was using an older 1.0.0.8 version for .NET 1.0 in my first version. This is a testament to Charles's work. Cool. So from a, a DevOps point of view, this is a way for me to add instrumentation to almost any kind of client and get it back to my server. It's it's pretty cool. And if you want to know more about XMLRPC, there's links to the facts and to uh, other websites that, that tell you all about it. And I added a link to the show notes so you can find it there. All right. So, Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 784, and that was show we did with Uncle Bob talking about the future of object orientation. We've got a few good comments off of this one. Uh, but I think you'd appreciate this particular comment considering what we're talking about today. This is from Elias Shayek, who says, I know it's been a while since the show was broadcast. Was it really broadcast? Uh, well, let's call it not. published. Yeah, published. But I wanted to point out something that I think may have been of interest in this context. Uncle Bob mentioned that there was the possibility for the need of a brand new language. Google is making an attempt with their new language called Go, yep. and it's at golang.org. It's supposed to be, at its heart, a low-level systems language like C, but with some constructs of higher-level languages like garbage collection and speed and ease of development of dynamic languages like Ruby and Python. I know this sounds like an eye-roll moment, but this project has some really solid and proven brain power behind it. The language has been developed by Robert Grazenheimer, Robert Pike and Ken Thompson. And yes, that's the Ken Thompson, wow. the person who with Dennis Ritchie gave us C and Unix. 
I'm only just starting to learn about it myself, but it sure sounds promising. That's awesome, dude. Yes, indeed. And uh, it sounds like a show I could probably pursue at some point. Although when I first sort of read this description, it's like, this sounds like a very dynamic version of C Sharp. I mean, dynamic languages of garbage collection. Yeah, interesting stuff. Either way, Ilias, thank you so much for your comment, and a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, all you have to do is write a comment on the website at .NETrocks.com. And before we introduce the guest, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have over 300 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, 12 to 15 new courses every month, a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. They have a wide range of developer topics, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything and everything Microsoft. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let's bring our guest on, Alex Robson. Alex is an architect, developer, and geek who enjoys working on distributed systems where scale and performance matter. He is experienced in designing and implementing full-stack web solutions using .NET, Erlang, and Node.js. Alex loves open source and open standards and is always working to improve his abilities, expand his tool set, and create simple solutions. Welcome, Alex. Hi. How's it going, guys? Doing all right. So have you been experimenting with Go? Is that in your polygot of languages? It's it's actually not currently. Um, in episode, I think it was 753, you had Brian Hunter and OJ Reeves on the show, and oh, they yes. talked about yeah. Erlang. And um, a lot of the things that it, it appears to, that, that Go is trying to accomplish, Erlang is, is sort of scratching that itch for me currently. So I've been spending quite a bit of time in Erlang and really enjoy that uh that language and platform that that um they put together there so what is it about erlang that makes it so elegant over say a more modern language like f sharp well i think it really depends what type of problem you're trying to solve there are some really nice things in f sharp that i would classify maybe as syntactic sugar um that are really nice and and from time to time i've found myself missing those in erlang but but the thing that Erlang really brings to the table that goes far beyond syntax is the tool set. Um, it's a very impressive set of libraries that come along with the OTP platform. Um, I, I I'm sure that you know Brian and, and OJ talked quite a bit about that because um, that's one of the things that I think Brian Hunter does an excellent job of uh, clarifying whenever he talks about Erlang is it's not just the language because, and this is one of the things that, um, that I mention a lot when, when you, you talk about this concept of poly being a polyglot programmer, it's really not just about syntax, right? If it was just about syntax, it'd all be a bit silly because that, that boils down to personal preference and, and anybody can really learn syntax if they spend some time with it. Right. Um, so there, there are some maybe some reasons why some syntaxes are better than than others at solving specific problems, right? Because you can express mm. things nicely in the right. language, but it has there has to be something a little bit more compelling, um, because at the end of the day, we're not just writing code for code's sake. We're not just writing code to communicate something cool to another developer. We're trying to solve problems for somebody, right? Whether that's a customer, or we're trying to solve one of our own problems. And so the question is, what tool set is best suited for solving that particular problem. You know, Alex, um, we really didn't go that deep into OTP. In fact, I'm I'm trying to remember if we even talked about it at all. Did we, Richard? Do you remember? No, I don't think we did. 
So um, this is really intriguing to me because this is sort of like the .NET framework of Erlang, it sounds like. What, right, uh, tell exactly. Tell us a little bit more about it. Um, so OTP is, is really, if I, if I understand it correctly, it's the sort of like the base class libraries, but with that come several patterns, right? So one of the most common ones is the gen server pattern, right? And it basically tells you this is how you write a particular server um, that's going to receive and execute different commands and requests coming into it. And everything in Erlang is about message passing, right? So this server exists in a process, um, in an Erlang process, and it can receive messages, which it executes in a loop, right? So the nice thing about Erlang is you can have lots and lots of processes running concurrently on a machine, but within a process, you never have to worry about collisions because only one thing is ever happening at any given point in a process. So it's in that way, there's some nice parity if you understand Node that what Node is doing maps to what an Erlang process does quite nicely. They're both really event loops at the core, right? So, the, so these processes, oh, are, I'm, I'm thinking of a process in an operating system that's completely protected memory-wise and uh, maybe even in a... Uh, Maybe even an app domain in the .NET world. Is it the same kind of idea? It's it's a context. It is a context. It's not as heavy as an app domain. There's not quite as much protection. Mm-hmm. Erlang is all about share nothing memory management, though. Mm. Um, which comes in handy if you're if you're writing concurrent applications where you need this concurrency. You don't have to worry about locks because right. there's no way for process A to ever get access to anything in process B aside from sending a message where everything is copied, there's no reference passing. Right, right. right. Um, and that's part of how you get immutability. Yeah, that's pretty but, pretty wonderful when it comes to asynchronous. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah. And and you you hit the nail on the head when you said it's like a, an operating system process because the Erlang runtime is actually an operating system. Huh. So in it within it, it has the disk calls and the memory calls and... In, in in sort of all that goo that developers don't like to deal with. Yeah, as 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 much as it can. And there's there's actually ways to run Erlang bare metal. So what is it you know nothing's bare metal anymore, really. Like I think back to TR City model one where when I started up it said ready and you could start typing code. You know, what does bare metal look like today? Yeah, that's a good question. Since I haven't actually done the installation. Okay. Uh, as I understand it, Ur- the Erlang runtime system basically becomes the thing you boot into, right? There's nice. not another operating system between it and the actual hardware interface. Which I mean, which makes sense to me when you consider Erlang's origins in the telco space, where it's like, this is the OS running this telco switch. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So is it... Is so, it- I, I think before we get uh, off on that subject, is it possible, say, to, on an Intel architecture, run... Uh, Erlang right off right off the metal with no other operating system? As I understand it, uh, again, I haven't done it myself. I, I think it's one of those things that might um, <laughs> require a little bit of spelunking. Um, I, I don't know I don't know of people who do this on a regular basis. Because so. that sounds um, like but, a fun challenge to me. <laughs> it does. It, it sounds though. like it would actually be pretty awesome. Once you get the hang of all the things that are available in, in Erlang, um, I, I do quite a bit in the REPL, right? Because there's just so much you can do at that level. Mm. Um, 
And it, it's it's really interesting. Languages that have a REPL. And define REPL? Uh, REPL is read, eval, print, loop. Okay. So you 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 know you run whatever the language is like ruby node python and erlang i'm sure several others all have this you you run the language runtime and you can put uh normal lines of code for the most part and it it executes them it evaluates and executes them immediately in this context for you which you know that sounds like the old command line you know direct interactive programming model right just you type a line it does something you can you could type a bunch of lines with we used to use line numbers and then say okay now run the program and it would just execute in line right then and there mm-hmm. and you yeah. can do that with erlang it's you can actually compile erlang code from the repl and load that code into the runtime um and, and interact. You, the the amazing thing is this allows you to sort of touch and feel the code, right? It's it's a little bit different with compiled languages that don't have this. I think this is eventually coming to .NET, and um, it's it's one of those things where once I started to appreciate the the power that was available, I, I really wanted it for writing C sharp code as well. I thought this would be awesome. Yeah, and the things that the thing that I think about if when I undertake a project like this, you know, and leave my comfy comfy world of .NET behind, isn't so much the, you know, the 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 string handling and all of those great things that I'm used to, but more along the lines of when I, you know, some of the higher level tools like speech recognition and like uh, speech synthesis and um, you know, some of the higher level things that I'm used to in .NET. Is there like a community of of researchers and developers that put together some cutting edge libraries like that that exist in the Erlang space? Um, I, not that I'm aware of. I haven't done anything with uh, speech recognition or synthesis. So this is where things get interesting. If you're talking about being a polyglot developer, right, it's not just that you're leaving one language for the sake of another it's that you're you're saying to yourself i have all these different problems and i i want to understand what different tool sets provide me with so that i can fragment the way i'm uh, approaching these problems yeah such that using the most appropriate tool set for the problem so it's not that you would switch to node or erlang or python or ruby and not use net anymore it's really Figuring out, okay, well, there's, I already know how to do speech recognition in Erlang, or excuse me, in .NET, like you said. Well, well don't rewrite that stuff in Erlang or Node and, unless there's a really compelling reason to do so, right? And, and Unless those particular tool sets allow you to express the problem exceptionally well, bring performance improvements, yeah. you know, let you add your features faster, the thing then I'm thinking, no- the thing I'm thinking of here, Alex, is that um, you know I could have a, a separate server to interpret speech and then send commands into another server that processes in Erlang if I'm going to do any kind of speech-driven application. But uh, but the th- but the thing is, is that if what if you want to do the processing on the speech data itself in Erlang? Now you have to be passing around big blocks of audio data and that kind of stuff. You know, you know what I'm thinking? I mean, one we're interfacing for a little bit of data over the wire is okay, but there comes a point where hmm, that data has to exist in process. Certainly. Yeah. It depends what you're trying to do, right? There's the classic architect answer. It depends. Yeah. Um, sure. <laughs> I've seen, 
it, it has this, so it has pattern matching built into the syntax, which is very, very powerful. And the pattern matching extends even to binary so that you can have these different function heads, right? It's the same function, but each head matches a different, a slightly different pattern and reacts to it separately. So from the calling side of the code, you're just calling, you know, parse bitstream, but there are, you know, maybe 15 different implementations depending on um, what pattern it is you need to respond to appropriately in your code. Like this is where things really get interesting and you get towards that, like I was saying before, if it expresses the problem well, right? So not just for the computer, but for the other humans that are going to read your code. Um, and there's less effort involved in expressing the problem. Um, it starts to get interesting. And it turns out that Erlang pattern matching um, allows you to effectively um, fork in your code in a more um, a more efficient way than is presently available for things like .NET. They're using, um, I believe they're called REIT trees in the background. Hmm. And so it's this way to sort of pre-compile um, this pattern matching. So it's not like doing an if-then or a switch, right? right? It's, it's doing this really advanced evaluation against the data coming into the function and branching, and it can do it more and more efficiently. You know, it seems to me Erlang would be the ideal system to develop neural networks with. Yeah, uh, I, I think there's been some work um, done in that in that space. Yeah, we're not the first so, to think of that. Yeah, I'm sure, but it, it just sort of dawns on me that you're talking about trees and and uh, asynchronicity and and that's sort of you know what what's going on in in a neural network on a on a big scale. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, I, I, we haven't done a show on neural nets. Maybe we've talked about it years ago, but, but we should, we should find somebody who does that because mm -hmm. it's fascinating stuff. And it, when used with historical data, like weather or stocks or horse racing, the results can be amazing. Predictability wise. Anyway, I didn't mean to derail it, but you know, it just seems to me that that, you know, any kind of, uh, neuroscience modeling might be, a Erlang might be a good fit. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik JustCode. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how'd you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files? The new kit on the block, JustCode, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that JustCode is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where JustCode is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features JustCode offers and download a trial at Telerik.com slash JustCode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. But I do think you speak to a particular point here, Carl, which is that there is a price to building an application with multiple languages. And so I'm, I'm just trying to wrestle with or at least be the advocate for, hey, my monoculture has a distinct advantage of all my people speak one language and they can read each other's code. Show me the big win here when we introduce one of these more complex technologies. Like, what is it bringing to the table? 
Sure. So it's it's interesting that you you mentioned monoculture because I, I gave a talk on this this idea of being a polyglot developer and challenging monocultures in general was one of the high level goals of the talk um, because I I came out of a monocultural background right mm-hmm. um, and and the thing was I I was fortunate enough to run a team with some extremely talented uh, individuals and. You know, we we had the best, right? We had good tools. We had .NET. It's good stuff. Um, people who were very talented, and you know, we had people who could focus more on the the ORM side, the the communications layer, the business logic, the user interface. Like we had it, you know. But the thing was, we kept struggling with this consistent under under delivery, and you know, yeah, there were cultural issues from, uh, you know, communications maybe with the customer, but that's kind of consistent. And I, I, I'd started looking around at other teams and seeing people who were just knocking stuff out and being like, well, what's the difference? Started asking more questions and digging around. And one of the things that, you know, I like I'd go back through team scrum notes and figure out what the blockers were and where we were losing time. And, and the mm-hmm. thing that kept coming up time after time was tool set, right? We'd get bit by WCF or you know, this, that, and the other thing. Um, and realize that there are, there are other teams out there who were able to deliver a little bit better. And a lot of times that what it boiled down to is they were using not necessarily completely different tool set, but they were using more tools or different tools to solve mm-hmm. specific types of problems. Because um, when, when I hear the story of we got bit by WCF, I say, are we undereducated in WCF? Oh, Sure. Yeah, and that's that's always a possibility. I would say in this case, um, <laughs> given the amount of time we had people spending deep diving into that, and the fact that we were reaching out to other other folks who you know speak on WCF, and that's kind of their bread and butter. Right. It's you know you start bumping up against edges, right? Yeah. The more advanced your become, the more you start finding out. Well, the screwdriver wasn't really meant to bang a nail, right? Yeah. I'm probably just going to tear the handle up. But it, and, there's and this so great it, line of, yeah, I think we could get it to do that, but it doesn't necessarily make it a good idea. Hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately, a monoculture doesn't really equip you to ask that question well, does it? Right. If you're, if you're in a monoculture, there's, there's a lack of awareness of, of what the other tool sets really have to offer. Like, you know enough things about them to kind of poke fun, right? right. Like, all the guys i've ever worked with like we just we love to pick at java <laughs> it's you know but it's it's well of, it's easy yeah it is they, they kind of do make it easy but but at the end of the day now now no six- talking smack about java <laughs> i have to deal with my brother on a daily basis here let's keep loving the family that's right right so uh you know you if you go to conferences like qcon you're going to hear a lot about amazing things people are doing with java yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Asking the, these types of questions. Well, what what is it about Java that allowed you to do X? And then you can find out: Is it somebody who's just like really going to town on the nail with a screwdriver handle, or are there things about Java that I didn't know about because I've been in my .NET monoculture for so long? Right. Those are the stories that intrigue me as well. But I also love the metaphor. Of the idea of this guy's really good at hammering nails with a screwdriver. <laughs> it didn't make it right. He just got good at it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'd say that uh, for myself personally, I had definitely done that in .NET. Mm-hmm. Um, was, uh, you know, was trying to 
up until you know just a few years ago um, solve distributed system problems using .NET, right? There are some really real boundaries there. Microsoft didn't write C Sharp for that purpose, right? They 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 did a very good job building a tool set for people who need to 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 write. Uh, and, and maybe I'm not being fair, but I'll say relatively small sized business application solutions, right? Mm-hmm. Not something that necessarily needs to get installed on 20 servers and scale out to hundreds of thousands of transactions per second, right? If you need that kind of thing, it's not necessarily what the the sweet spot Microsoft was aiming for. So the thing is, it's really easy to sound critical of .NET, but that's it's not the case. It's It's really looking at myself and saying, well, there's the problem, right? I was <laughs> trying to drive screws with a hammer and, and right. that's not the, you know, that's not Stanley's fault for making a, a great hammer. Oh, I uh, want to go back to um, Erlang versus F sharp and, and talking about OTP versus the base class library, if you might want to compare those things. And, um, you know, we get things in F sharp, like we get link and, you know, we get those sort of dot netty things. What are what are some of the things in OTP that you just couldn't do easily? You'd you'd be hammering with a screwdriver in F sharp. Um, the the supervisor trees um, are part of OTP and Erlang, and those are probably one of the most compelling things. Once I wrap my head around what they do, you have this idea of a supervisor. It doesn't do any actual work outside of. Um, simply monitoring what other processes, are, you know, it it can control their spin up, and then it monitors that process for failure. And because you've given it the parameters for how often to restart that process, you sort of give it a tolerance, mm-hmm. time, and frequency. And it if it can't continue to to restart the process because it's outside of those parameters, the supervisor itself will crash. So you can have trees of these supervisors and, and have ways in which your application will continue to self-adjust and restart just portions of itself um, before the whole thing goes down. Um, mm. You could maybe come up with something close for that in .NET, but it would be extremely heavy, right? A, a process in Erlang takes maybe a microsecond to start. I mean, I've, I've seen crazy demos where people will start up tens of thousands of processes in like a second or two. Wow. You guys know what it takes to start up, spin up a thread in .NET. Um, to reference Brian Hunter's talk that he gave at DevLink this year on the Erlang runtime system, he was comparing the size of a .NET thread to an Erlang process. And a .NET thread is, I think, roughly one megabyte. Awesome. Um, whereas a Erlang process is one kilobyte. Wow. So they're very, very light by comparison. And this isn't the only reason to use Erlang. It's just the reason why I make the contrast is if I'm telling you about these great supervisor tree ideas, somebody who's exceptionally uh, skilled in the .NET stack would think, I can do that, right? Yeah. I'll just wrap these thread startups in um, a try-catch, and I'll have a callback so that when it goes down, I can call back out to the .NET supervisor class that I've created, and he'll just re-spin it. He'll log the reason for the failure. You know, you could build these things. Mm-hmm. You won't get the same behavior though. The again, it, it goes back to what what .NET was created to do. 
Right. So again, it's not a criticism of .NET that it doesn't behave like this other thing. Like saying my car is not a motorboat. It is, you know. <laughs> yes, it, you're correct. It's not. Um. So <laughs> so don't try to go uh, out on the lake with it. <laughs> yeah. It's it's just knowing what these things look like in these other platforms and and why the experience might be compelling to solve certain problems. So it's interesting because at Appentu, we have a lot of exceptionally gifted uh, JavaScript developers. Um, they can make JavaScript dance and sing, right? <laughs> um, and we want to be able to leverage that skill set and being able to solve some problems on the server side using Node is is it's a really compelling potential use case for us to consider. However, there are similar concerns about um, stability of processes and things in Node that you would have in the .NET world. So we've been looking at... Um, ways to host node or .NET processes through Erlang so that you're actually spinning up the, um, you know, app domain for .NET or a, a node process uh, under the supervision of an Erlang supervisor tree so that you can get some of that reliability that comes with OTP and apply it to other languages. Hey, Richard. Yes, sir. You know what time it is. It must be that happy time again. It's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Nice. Today's winner is Stephen Proctor from North Richland Hills, Texas. Congratulations, Stephen. Golf, golf clap for you. Golf clap for Stephen. What did he win? He won a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. That's everything that they do software-wise in one box. Nice. And uh, it's it's downloadable. And it's a, a big value. It's a $2,000 value. So uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff link over in the top right corner and uh, sign up for the fan club. We have thousands of members. You could be one of them, and uh, you could win. And every December, starting this December, Richard and I are going to handpick $5,000 worth of technology and give that to one lucky member of the fan club. So we've gotten used to asking our, our uh, guests here, Alex, if somebody said, I will buy you any technology you want, tell me what to get. I have $5,000. Go. What would you get? Any technology. Whatever you like. Whatever you like. Some kind of high tech thing or collection of things. I would probably go uh, for REOC licenses. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Okay, and tell us about Reoc. Uh, Reoc is a NoSQL database um, written in Erlang, and it's based on the uh, Amazon Dynamo um, standard, right? So it does a job of scaling out and, and managing data across multiple servers so that you're, as a consumer of this database, you're able to just write the data and trust that it's being replicated appropriately. So it has very good um, partition tolerance and uh, availability guarantees, but it's also tunable. So if you needed more consistency, you could get it. There are ways you could get it. Yep. And then we talked about React a little bit on the show before. Awesome. Yeah. Sure. And they have a free version. You know, there is the open source yep, edition. Very good it, stuff. But, but the enterprise edition is pretty serious business like that's full up as good a data store as any you'll ever find so i'd be interested in your reactions to um 
you know, what, what I was mentioning before about getting Erlang to actually host, uh, services written in other languages to get some of that, um, reliability, right? That robust guarantee that right. comes from. Yeah. So you'd and use yeah. the, you'd use Erlang to spin up the processes and then you would communicate with, um, with other, uh, components that are already spun up. Is that the idea in other languages? Or mm-hmm. in .NET, for perhaps. Right. So, if, yeah, if the .NET process goes down, Erlang would actually be responsible for detecting that and restarting it for you. Hmm. That's and pretty then, cool. Now, you've done this, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we, we've toyed with different ways of uh, making the communication layer between these languages uh, compelling, right? <laughs> Yeah, because if if there's not an easy way to communicate, you know, you both mentioned that there's a price to be paid, right? Sure. There's mm-hmm. it's an additional consideration that before you're like, well, I'm just gonna make a function call. Um, but I, I'm kind of a as I mentioned earlier, I'm kind of a distributed systems geek. It's it's one of those things that I, I like trying to solve those problems. It's something I think about and 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 play with in my spare time. So message passing, you know, using different ways of message passing becomes a big part of it, but I was doing this even in .NET before I started looking outside of the, the .NET stack to other languages, sure. using things like RabbitMQ to get various uh, .NET processes to talk to one another. And it was interesting because when we started doing this, um, we had some interesting uh, challenges that we were trying to solve. I had to go through a lot of data crunching uh, in a short period of time, and we're really pushing the limits of, you know, a single server that we had available. And so we started looking for ways that we could break this up and distribute the message load across multiple boxes. Um, and, you know, the great thing was, while it may not have been linear, we were able to cut something down that was taking, you know, like over 10 hours down to one or two hours by just running that same process on a lot of different machines and then having them all pull messages off the same queue. Wow. Which is, I mean, that's a pretty common architectural pattern for large scaling. I just think, you you know, you get back to this so you megabyte process. So you get really interesting architectural use cases um, at first. But the nice thing is, is you realize that, you know, once you sort of peek outside of the monoculture, that people have been doing these types of things for a really long time. Yeah, you're not inventing anything um, new here. Right? And that's that's the thing that's exciting to me because it doesn't feel like I'm just sort of out in crazy land trailblazing without uh, a safety net. <laughs> right. There's a there's a whole body of knowledge available. Now, Alex, whether or not you're in crazy land is a different issue entirely, but it's got to be encouraging to at least know that there are some known architectural patterns around scaling there where you use a queue to allow multiple systems to pick up messages and execute on them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so two of the things that we've probably experimented with the most are zero MQ and Rabbit MQ. And Rabbit MQ is a uh, there's there's some comfort in using something like Rabbit because it's based on an open standard AMQP. Right. Um, zero is actually a splinter of the original AMQP working group. They they felt like things were getting way too complex. So zero is very, very fast, but there's no message broker and you have to build some of the pieces yourself. However, it, there are use cases where they've shown that zero MQ can be faster than TCP IP at sending raw binary over the wire. Well, now, wow. well, okay. Now how, how 
I can see TCP IP, but what about UDP? Well, Isn't that uh, the sort of the basic building block of communication? Sure. You can use UDP and zero MQ as well. Um, it really boils down to what kind of guarantees you need, right? If you're solving certain types of problems, it doesn't ever make sense to worry about dropped packets. But sure. if you're solving business class problems, chances are, um, at least in the, I should say, I should qualify this, in the industries I've worked in, um, mm-hmm. losing a message is never an option for us. So right. reliability guarantees. It, it, interestingly enough, zero will also use um, inter-process communication, right, instead of just sockets. So if you have processes that are all being hosted on the same machine, right, Erlang's guaranteeing that those processes are available and establishing the communication handshake, then you can have all these processes talking to one another, and they don't have to know anything about what language was passing them the data. You just agree on the format. So if it's JSON, it's JSON. If it's um, protocol buffers, you know, there's lots of different, I think there are several emerging ones even that are, potentially more efficient in terms of packing and sending the data. Um, But it's really interesting. You start thinking in these terms and there are actually benefits you get from writing the code this way. Sure. When you're a service that has one concern and it's just sort of, it's very naive, right? It's only thinking along the lines of I'm just getting these types of messages and doing something and sending a message in response. That's very testable code, right? You've, Decoupled. It also tends towards statelessness. You know, I was thinking about your your point about how light uh, a a thread is in Erlang versus a process in a .NET. So with that weight, we're careful about creating and destroying processes. So we do a lot more care and feeding to keep them healthy. Where in Erlang, you just kill it. Who cares? Light another one when you need it. Hmm. I will not claim to have. Um entirely embrace the let it fail philosophy into my heart that you you get from the Erlang guys. Like I still, I I just have, you know, I have over 10 years of (laughs) experience in .NET thinking uh, a very certain way. And so this idea of it's okay, let it fall over and we'll just start a new one. At first it made me very anxious. (laughs) I've, I've also come at it this way. As a guy who's battled an awful lot of garbage collection, there is no faster way to free memory than killing the process. (laughs) You know, I want to go back to what you were talking about, UDP, and one of the ways that we, you know, can not guarantee delivery, but, you know, more guaranteed delivery is by doubling up the packets that we send with UDP. And this is a typical thing they do in games. You know, if you're going to send a message from one place to another really fast, you just send it twice. And the second one is ignored. Yep. No, that makes total sense. If you're good at writing idempotent, um, message processors, then there's absolutely no concern there. Um, yeah, again, it really it really goes back to what what is the problem you're trying to solve. Right. But I think that's a really cool point that you brought out is you don't have to use TCP. I, I, I if I remember correctly, zero can work across UDP, but I'd have to double check that. Uh, Not something that you personally done, but well, it's it's interesting how just getting inside the mindset of an Erlang programmer just brings out all these things. Like Richard said, that you just don't concern yourself with because because you don't have that care and feeding. I think that's a really fascinating thing about being a polyglot programmer, and maybe get get a little confusing sometimes when you know you you reach for a tool that isn't there. And by tool, I don't just mean a tool, but an architecture or a way to do something. Just because you know you have to take the whole of the system into consideration. <laughs> 
And I'm, yeah. I'm sure that can get both, it's both liberating and frustrating at the same time, I'm sure. It's only frustrating if you have to dive back into a monoculture. Yeah. Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of actor reports. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active reports from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. Well, I think part of this is just thinking in terms of architecture without technology, right? Patterns without a specific language in mind. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting, right? Because you, it will actually typically make you better across the board, even at the language you started in, right? So my yep. sharp got better as I started looking at some of these other languages, um, from several different aspects, right? It's, it's, you start, you break out of that initial mindset of have to do this. Well, duh, I'm going to do the thing I've always done because that's what I'm used to. Right. You start at these other paradigms, right? These other architectural models. You realize, hey, I can take that back to my C sharp and solve a problem a little bit more elegantly than it was previously. Um, and it's exciting too, because the, the interesting thing is it's kind of rewarding. Even if you're just doing it on your own, you can come back to the team and show them some things in the language they're used to. And it's very energizing. They get excited because you just showed them something that relates to their world as it is now. And, and this is sort of it for people who are looking to maybe introduce another language. This is kind of how to do it. You start solving problems, um, like this and people will ask you where you came up with it. And that right. gives you talking point and because it relates to something that was rewarding for them they they're really interested versus like if you're if you just like burst in the team room the next day and you're like erlang is amazing it's the best like people are just kind of looking at you like what what how do you even spell that right they, yeah. it doesn't tie back to anything they care about right now because they don't see how it's going to solve their problems yeah in this in the end this is about addressing difficult problems and it's only when you get to you, you're never going to make a shift on language or care about polygod if you're just doing forms over data. Oh, I, I totally agree. Well, because you've you've already you got the problem beat, right? You could do it in your sleep. Yeah. It, yeah. It, if the problem's simple and your tool set addresses it, I'll tell you the biggest pain point going from .NET to to a lot of the other languages I've mentioned today is the debugging experience. Oh yeah. Soft nailed that. Like we are so spoiled. Right. It's it's kind of amazing to when you see what other languages are dealing with. I, I'm not saying that Java doesn't have it because I don't know. They don't. The debugging experience is fantastic. Yeah, it is. It's actually really fun to have folks that are programming in other environments stand over your shoulder while you're doing a real rapid set of iterations and some edit continues. They're like, how are you doing that? Yeah. Like they can't even speak. Yeah. So it's interesting um, it, to contrast that against what Erlang lets you do is er, Erlang has hot code loading. Yeah. Uh, so you can be in the REPL and you can compile uh, uh, an Erlang module and run it, right? So it's running, it's doing its 
loop in the background processing messages, you can actually jump back to your editor, make the change, compile the code, and it will reload without a noticeable disruption, right? Because everything is um, immutable, yep. Erlang can separate the basically the, the heap for that process from the actual code for the process. So what does that really mean? <laughs> it, it, that it, it can effectively say, I've got this process running. Oh, there's new code for this process. Okay, we'll start executing the new code for the process. Code and data completely separate. And it, to see the example that, that uh, Brian gives, and, and I can't remember which talk. He's got a couple Erlang talks now. The, the example he gives, it's so awesome when you're in a room with people who don't know a lot about Erlang. Right. He's got this, he's got this uh, server running in the background, this like, simple little process. It's getting messages on an interval and printing those to the console. So it's just, you know, like, let's say every second it's saying, hello, world. And he goes into his editor, and he, he changes the message to say, goodbye, world, or whatever. And jumps back into the REPL where this thing's running, and he just types C, module name, uh, close parens, and then the next time the interval comes around, it's the new message. Wow. Yeah, even in .NET or even in C++ working in Windows, loading a DLL, there's a bit more of a hitch there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're going to lose the state, right, if you have to shut that down. And there's strategies. Don't get me wrong. I've, I've actually played around with some interesting ways to try to mitigate this sort of thing and, and get not .NET to behave in a similar fashion, but it's not the same thing, right? And there's a lot more overhead and it's, it's sort of like, it's like open heart surgery at this point, right? Right. You're saying, well, I want this other thread to keep running because it's hosting this process. Well, it's, it's hosting this code for me. Really what I want to be able to do is try to capture whatever that state is. Um, <laughs> Isolate it, stop messages flowing into this old version, spin up the new app domain, have it load that state, and then start redirecting messages to it. Mm. You can do that in .NET. There's nothing stopping you. But the question is, how much effort does that take and how accident-prone is that whole approach? Because there's a lot more steps and the runtime's not doing it for me. That's the beauty of the Erlang runtime system is it's, it's kind of doing this for you so you don't, you don't think about it anymore. Right. Well, you get back to this idea of what is sort of native to this to this language and this development process versus foreign. You know, I'm, I'm still clinging to this, jumping back to the original conversation around the whole, you know, process versus thread right. and the rapid kill. You know, if you're, if you're killing the thread after you make every request, the whole conversation of state management goes out the window. Like you're, you're I, I've heard Scott Guthrie use this line, you're falling into the pit of success. Mm. Because right. the natural way that that thing works doesn't let you do stupid things. Mm. Right. Which, like, like you pointed out before, um, if it's forms over data, none of these questions are coming up, right? Nobody's asking, well, but how can we get, do our forms over data over 100 servers? Well, probably. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you find yourself trying to solve some of these problems that, aren't really sort of fall outside of Microsoft's main concerns. And, you know, in fairness to them, now you're trying to do something that they, they really weren't trying to help you do. So that's where you start looking at other languages. Um, you know, I haven't said a whole lot about Node, but there's, there's some things that Node.js is 
really hard to beat. Like it's really hard to ignore. Uh, and, and so it, it's, it's kind of fun to really think through and ask yourself questions like, well, does this make more sense to do this in .NET, Node, or Erlang? Mm. And where I, a lot of times where I come back to .NET and say, well, I'd, I'd really rather just do this in .NET, um, it has to do with integration. Um, .NET has a wealth of um, libraries and APIs around integrating with different things, right? Um, it's very good at talking to databases because that's people do that all the time, right? You have things like Simple Data or and Hibernate or uh, I don't know, I don't, I, I can't keep up with all of them, but there's just right. different ways to do that. You go to Node or or Erlang, and your choices are very, very slim all of a sudden. And it would get to a place where you have to ask yourself, do I really want to reinvent something that's already working perfectly well in this other language? Alex, have you published white papers or code uh, uh, regarding your polyglot architectures? In particular, I'm thinking about the uh, Erlang supervisor around the .NET uh, provider. So uh, I'm currently working on an, an open source. Well, it's not open source yet. I'm currently working on an Erlang library that would would uh, be capable of hosting processes written in other languages. So at some point, the intention is for us to open source that piece. There's some communication bits uh, and you know maybe some other niceties that won't necessarily get open source. But this is going to solve uh, problems for us specifically as we start moving forward in this space and sort of looking more at full stack development. So I, I want to be careful in releasing a, a library like this and be very deliberate in terms of what it can and can't do. Um, because, you know, you don't want to make promises to people of, well, it can do this, this, and this, um, and have them jump over and use something like that, like really take this polyglot approach seriously and look at another language and then have that the reason they switched over let them down, right? Yeah, that's, right. That's no good. Um, and so really this this library for us is going to be something that gets built into other systems that will allow those systems to say, okay, now spin up this node process, this .NET process, this Ruby process, whatever it is we need. Um, so it's it's one of those things where I'm, I'm really excited about it and I um, hope that it comes together soon. Hey, Alex, I want to say one more time on a particular point, and that's this whole idea of a monoculture. I mean, is there is there really a monoculture? Don't we always have some other language hanging around the periphery like SQL or JavaScript? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think traditionally, and I can speak to the .NET uh, culture, right, where, where you're using the .NET framework predominantly to solve all your problems. JavaScript and SQL factor in, but they're not first-class citizens right culture. so and and the thing is to a large degree sql will never inform how you write your c-sharp right that's true because it's not a full stack tool set it's a it's really a domain specific language and traditionally javascript i don't want to get myself in trouble here but i would say that traditionally and i'm speaking several years back javascript has been enough of an afterthought that there weren't enough patterns practices architectural guidance around how you use javascript so javascript wasn't far enough along at least traditionally to inform how i wrote my c-sharp either right javascript right. that thing that you just kind of had to hold your nose and write in the browser a lot of times you know crockford's book right <laughs> JavaScript yeah parts, it wasn't out yet um 
there, there wasn't this body of knowledge that came along with this language that helped enrich the way you write C sharp. And because it's dynamic, there's even less crossover, right? It's a prototypical inheritance model. What the crap am I supposed to do with that when I'm thinking about my, my .NET code? So it, it's interesting. I, I really see, this is what I've seen personally in my experience, is that you have guys who are strong in .NET that are now getting more and more into JavaScript, and they're bringing good patterns and practice style thinking to how JavaScript gets written. I it's totally agree. Corollary, but it is, it's, it's the whole idea that, hey, there needs to be a mindset. We need to be talking about patterns. We need to figure out what good practices are. So you see people coming from these server-side monocultures into JavaScript, taking it more seriously because of, you know, the interpreters are getting awesome now. You know, Chrome, IE, and Firefox all have really good JavaScript engines now that are just getting better all the time because they're competing with one another. Hmm. So we can start taking it more and more seriously, you know, Node being a thing now um, and addressing some things that you couldn't previously do with JavaScript. So I, I think going forward, there might be that opportunity to say that if you're using .NET and, and, and JavaScript like Node or Java, a lot of JavaScript in the browser, you could you could make the argument that it's no longer a monoculture, but I would say a lot of traditional shops that aren't quite there yet it's still the thinking is is uh you know object oriented uh, statically typed strongly typed language right right and, and i i think script sharp is a is a perfect um case study in how this happens right i i know my c sharp it's my security blanket i feel safe with it so instead of me learning javascript and the the idioms uh that come along with that how about I write C sharp that gets cross compiled to JavaScript. Right. It's pretty awesome. Like, to me, that's still, a, that's, that's still a sign that the monoculture exists to some degree. Yeah. 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 Although, I mean, yeah, you write Crockford's books, what turned the corner for JavaScript, but now I feel like they are going too far. Well, sometimes that's what you have to do. And I kind of feel like a JavaScript kind of is the default language just because it's so widely supported in the browsers it became the default language i mean it's it's don't get me wrong it's not i'm not just head over heels in love with it however i will say that there are some amazing things that i've been able to do with it server side so i, I gave a talk this year on hypermedia apis and i wrote the server and the client side demo in and all in javascript because the flexibility that the language has, I didn't have to spend a lot of time thinking about, well, what type system would best describe the metadata I need to build my hypermedia as part of the responses? Right. So in about 100 lines of server-side code written in JavaScript, I was able to answer the question, express the problem of taking this metadata in JSON that defines all my states, the transitions, the transforms to get those state representations and turn that into the hypermedia that's going to become part of my response, right? So very, very little code allowed me to do something that's classically been relatively difficult to do on the .NET platform, right? And that's right, this hypermedia API that is telling the client, here are the available things you can do now that you are in this state, and here are the links you would call for each of those things, mm. right? And then on the client side, I'm basically just looking at these link names and, and part of what we did in the demo was um, show them that I could change 
the entire URL structure and still have a functioning client side app. The entire URL structure. Yeah. Alex, I think that's where we're going to have to leave it, although it sounds like it's just getting interesting now. Not that it wasn't before, but there's so much to talk about. Will you come back sometime? Yeah, this was great. I, I really appreciate the chance to talk to you guys. All right. And we're sorry about the Skype quality listeners. You know, that's what we get sometimes. But hey, it's Alex Robson. So thank you, Alex. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com Got transmitter bands by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a time bomb.